Well, I say good morning to you and uh, to those of you who are participating online. Thanks for being here today. And uh, I want to just give you sort of a little bit of a pastoral encouragement here this morning before we dive right into uh, our message. Uh, as you know, this has been a tough season. You know, March uh, through now has been a, a life interrupted and disrupted with various things. Uh, and I want to tell you that as I have talked with a lot of you and people in our community and whatnot, one of the things that I am recognizing is that people, people's margin is thin right now. I mean, their emotional margin, their spiritual margin. People are fatigued, they're frustrated, they're tired. And, uh, and I want to just kind of remind you about just the importance of taking care of yourself, particularly as we head into this next season. Uh, you guys see the leaves on the trees are just starting to show something's changing. School is coming. I, it's happening in some form or another. And um, so we, we know all these signs are happening. And uh, I just want to encourage you to, to be taking care of yourself in physical ways and in spiritual ways. We are body and we are spirit. And so, I, you know, just some of the really simple things, getting enough rest, eating well, uh, having good habits. If you've been binge watching Netflix with uh, Haagen-Dazs, you know, it's time to stop. <laughs> uh, good habits, taking walks, intending to your spiritual life. If you've lost the habit of your devotional life and being in the word, get it back. If you have become disconnected for even good reasons from uh, other believers that encourage your walk with God, find a way to re-engage. Even if it's just with a couple trusted folks that you connect with regularly, we need to tend to our bodies and our spirits, particularly as we get ready for another tough winter ahead in light of all that's behind. Please be caring for yourselves and be attentive to those around you who maybe don't have as many resources or lifelines that you do. So I just wanna encourage you in those ways. This is not a year to just coast. You're going to have to be intentional about taking care of yourself and taking care of people that you love, okay? So with that, let's pray, and then uh, we're going to dive right into the scriptures. Uh, Father, we confess, as your word tells us, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You knit us together. We're your creation. The human being is an incredible creation uh, with the capacity to worship and to relate to an infinite God. Yet we are finite. We have limitations. And God, uh, you, you have given us good instruction in your word about things like rest and eating and fellowship. Uh, so Lord, I pray that you would help uh, this church family here be good stewards of their bodies and their spirits and their lives and the relationships that you've entrusted to them. Father, now as we turn to your word, we pray that you would instruct us, that you would guide us, that we would know you better and love you more because of what you've revealed about yourself in the scriptures. Help us as we study together now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, if you don't have one, there's one, should be one on the rack in front of you. Actually, I take that back. We stole those. Those aren't there anymore. But you can, uh, you can see the, the passage um, on the screen in front of you. One of the things that I've really missed um, kind of during this whole COVID uh, season here has been sports. Um, like sports with a real crowd. With real cheering. Have you seen the virtual people in the crowds at some of these televised sports now? It's a little comical. Um, 
I miss the chants and the background noise and, and uh, the organ music and the drama of a real game and real competition. And uh, so I miss that. So if you know me, you know I'm a bit of a sports junkie. And uh, I have missed the sports, although I don't think Amy has missed the televised sports in our household. Uh, I think she's enjoying the peace and quiet. So, But this morning, by way of introduction to our passage, I thought I would um, introduce you to some of my favorite athletes over the past few decades. And um, they all have something in common. See if you can figure it out. Here's the first one. Uh, This fella is Michael Chang. Do you remember him in the 80s and the 90s? In 1989, at 17 years of age, he was the youngest player to ever win the French Open. And I loved watching Michael Chang play tennis because defensively, he was amazing. You you thought you hit a winner? No, he'd go and chase it down, and he would just keep doing it. And uh, he was tons of fun to watch. Uh, Also, five foot nine. Just say that. My next, uh, next fella I love, maybe one of my all-time heroes right here, this is Spud Webb. Anybody remember Spud Webb? What a great name. This guy gave hope to basketball players everywhere. He, is, uh, he played in the NBA for the Atlanta Hawks. In 1986, he won the slam dunk contest. Uh, Spud Webb is five foot seven. just to throw that out there. Next fella, Lionel Messi. This is, uh, uh, plays forward for Barcelona, arguably the best soccer player in the world. I'm just waiting for a little bit of reaction from, because you all know soccer fans are hoodlums, right? And this guy standing right behind him would argue with me about that point, about who's greater. Uh, Lionel Messi is five foot seven. Okay, moving on. We've got one last one. This guy uh, is shocking. Uh, His name, Muggsy Bogues. Muggsy Bogues is the shortest player in NBA history, standing at only five foot three. Uh, You know Michael Jordan there, of course, in the red. Muggsy Bogues is the guy looking up to him. And if this picture weren't dramatic enough, here's a real picture of Muggsy Bogues, the shortest player to ever play in the NBA with Minute Bull, his teammate at the time, who I believe was the tallest player to ever play. Here you go. (laughs) They're on the same team. That's amazing. So with that introduction, I will give you uh, one guess as to who we're going to encounter with Jesus this morning. Who is it? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. Oh, you guys went to Sunday school, didn't you? You sure did. Shall we sing the song together? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Okay, we're going to stop right there. (laughs) For lots of reasons, but one of which I don't know that we ought to be singing that song. Because I'm not sure telling somebody they're a wee little man is politically correct. And I think if you told Lionel Messi that he was a wee little man, I believe he would kick you in the shins. I think that is exactly what would happen next. Unfortunately, this man, Zacchaeus, uh, is known for his short stature, when actually he really ought to be known for his large heart and for true repentance. 
That's what we really uh, see in him. And so in our passage today, Luke 19, we're gonna, we're gonna look at two really kind of big principles. The first is this. We're gonna see yet again the unconditional love of Jesus for all people, for people who are still caught up in their sin. Jesus' love is not conditioned upon right behavior. He loves all without condition. And we're gonna get a chance to see that again this morning. And then secondly, we get a picture of what real repentance looks like uh, as Zacchaeus lays it out. So let's look at our passage together, Luke 19, starting at verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Well, let's do a little bit of background here and kind of flesh out some things that we, we kind of hear in our story that might not be well known to us. I think it helps set the stage First of all, Jericho was a very wealthy town, an important town. It's a bit of a bedroom community to Jerusalem, about 17 miles away. And because of its close proximity to Jerusalem it was, and to the temple, it was a place where a lot of priests and Levites lived, and uh, that way they could commute a short distance to sort of perform their regularly scheduled duties at the temple. Uh, Jericho was very rich in, in resources, uh, it boasted uh, a couple of different uh, forestry crops of balsam and uh, palm trees. Uh, in fact, it was known as the city of palms. Uh, and uh, that kind of explains, if you think about it, even as Jesus travels this same road into Jerusalem uh, before uh, Passover and before uh, the crucifixion on Palm Sunday, they're laying palms out in front of him. They would have come from this region. Uh, where these were sort of harvested. Um, I can imagine the sign at the city, and, you know, as you're walking into Jericho, you know, welcome to Jericho, the Palm Springs of Palestine, you know, or something like this. The historian Josephus called it the fattest city in the region and a divine city uh, because of all the wealth and the abundance there. But altogether, the reason I, I kind of get into this is, is this combines to make Jericho one of the greatest taxation centers, if you think about that. Uh, think of a city like San Francisco or La Jolla today. These are places with big homes, big properties, big incomes for taxation purposes, lucrative. And that kind of helps give us some insight to who Zacchaeus is here. First of all, he's really unpopular because he has an unpopular job. He's a tax collector. We looked at another tax collector a few weeks ago. We looked at uh, Levi or who was Matthew who would become a follower of Jesus. Uh, 
Uh, and and these, these folks, these tax collectors, were notorious for overcharging people their taxes, taking a little something for themselves, little commission. And worse than that, uh, um, Zacchaeus here also, he's a Jewish tax collector. So he has uh, basically contracted with Rome to tax his own people for their occupying force. So he is felt to be a bit of a traitor. In fact, so unpopular were, were especially Jewish tax collectors taxing from their own people for Rome uh, that very often they weren't, they weren't permitted to even go to synagogue. Imagine if we had signs out in the parking lot that said, welcome to Bethel Church, except those of you who work for whatever, the IRS or something like this. So there was a great shame associated with the position, and it was so strong that it actually carried over even to your family members. So Zacchaeus is a tax collector, which means he's viewed as a thief by his countrymen. He's a Jewish tax collector, uh, a traitor. He's the chief tax collector. So he's the godfather. He's the guy at the top of this whole charade, right? And if that's not enough, we're also told that he's wealthy. In other words, he is living in the community with all of the extras that he has extrapolated from the people. Front and center, they're looking at the tangible evidence of his crimes. So let's just sort of recap this here. If evil has a name and a face in this community of Jericho, it's Zacchaeus. He's not just a wee little man, right? He's a scoundrel. He's a scoundrel with little man syndrome. That's what he is. A little Napoleon here. Best thing we can say about Zacchaeus is he's good at what he did. Strategic location, landed the contract with Rome, chief tax collector, he's at the top. He's successful, he's affluent. But I think all of this information is helpful to get a sense of his mindset, his psyche, maybe his spiritual condition, how he, how he sees himself in the community, how he feels about himself and about God and those around him. Now, I'm just going to do a little bit of imagining here, but I, I think this, these are probably true. I would imagine that Zacchaeus was very lonely. I would imagine that he felt an enormous amount of anxiety and guilt. Uh, no amount of comfortable living would make him comfortable in his own skin. I would imagine that Zacchaeus felt not only distant from people, but distant from God. Uh, after all, how long had it been since he was able to worship at synagogue? I would imagine that Zacchaeus felt a bit hopeless. Like, I've set up this particular life for myself. How do I even possibly get out of it? So those are just some of my musings. But what we know for sure, what we do see in the text is that Jesus, or excuse me, Zacchaeus is curious about Jesus. He wanted to see who he was. Jesus' reputation clearly has preceded him to this town, Jericho. Crowds are gathering to view him, to catch a glimpse. Uh, Jesus certainly had a reputation for his teaching, for his healing ministry. And he was known as the friend of, to sinners, friend to sinners. And that was a bit of a, a dig kind of by the religious leaders. That's what they called him. Oh yeah, Jesus, the friend of sinners. I think that's a great compliment. 
I would love it if people referred to me, oh, you know, Eric, he's a friend of sinners. After all, he pastors Bethel Church, so, you know, he's a friend of sinners, right? <laughs> Can I tease you a little bit? I think that would be a great compliment that people would know me to be a friend to all. Uh, I wonder if Zacchaeus kind of felt like a spark of hope for the first time. Jesus, a friend of sinners, he's coming to town. I wonder if he remembered or had heard the story of Levi, Matthew, the tax collector, uh, that turned to become a follower of Jesus. I wonder if they might have even worked together. Maybe maybe Matthew was an employee of Zacchaeus. I, I don't know. But I wonder if he had heard of his conversion and thought, huh, maybe there's hope for me. What it seems to me is that the love and the mercy of Jesus that was known to all not only brought crowds forward, but it compelled Jesus or Zacchaeus to leave his villa and come out and sort of brave the crowds to catch a glimpse and to encounter Jesus. And I think this is a reminder to you and me as a part of the community of faith. And and here it is. As followers of Christ, the most conspicuous thing about us ought to be our genuine love for others. Jesus himself said, they will know you are my disciples because you'll have really good bumper stickers espousing your conservative values. No, he didn't say that. What did he say? By your love for one another. Your love. The most compelling sign, the most conspicuous sign of a follower of Jesus is their love. It's their love. I think it would be wonderful if people knew us to be a friend to sinners, a friend to all. Um, This kind of love and grace and winsomeness ought to be a defining feature of our lives if we claim the name of Christ. 1 Peter 2 says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, the conspicuous love of Christian for Christian and Christian for the world is the mark of discipleship, and it's the thing that ought to move people themselves towards considering the claims of Christ and themselves becoming a disciple. One of the things that really impresses me about Zacchaeus are sort of the obstacles that he, the obstacles that he overcomes to encounter him. Uh, we'll just run through those quickly. First of all, he's got a physical obstacle, right? We're told plainly and kind of comically, the man's short. There's no two ways about it. He's vertically challenged, close to the ground, whatever you want to call it. You can just imagine sort of this little man kind of scurrying out to see Jesus among a crowd of people that don't like him at all, which actually brings us to the second obstacle. He's got what we might call sort of a relational obstacle. To get out into the community here is probably risky for him. Zacchaeus has bullied these people financially for years. No one's going to give ground or give up their spot so that he can get a straight shot at Jesus, right? Can you imagine the rope lines? Zacchaeus, hey guys, you know. He scurries along and he climbs a tree. It's kind of funny. 
And, and it's just one of those little details and conspicuous things in the scriptures that helps to validate its reliability. He climbed this particular tree. A little man got in a tree so he could see Jesus. And he also has what we might call a moral obstacle. Uh, he's been shunned from the church because of his profession. Worshippers of Yahweh don't want him in synagogue. And these are supposed to be the nice people. He might feel like, well, I can't be real bold and kind of butt in here. That's, that's really risky. And so Zacchaeus is facing a number of obstacles. But what I really appreciate about him is that he didn't let anything stop him from encountering Jesus. He overcame the obstacles. He confronted them head on. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd. He ran ahead, he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And I want to use that sort of picture uh, for those of you who may be curious about Jesus. You know you're not a Christian. Maybe you're wondering, you're, you have questions. Uh, you're not sure if you want to be a Christian or not, but maybe you have certain obstacles to uh, to really becoming a follower of Christ. Uh, maybe there are questions about, you know, the Bible's quite big. I don't know if I understand it all. Or who is this Jesus figure? There's claims about him that I can't reconcile with the world, whatever. And my encouragement to you would be, if you're questioning or, or considering becoming a Christian, don't let anything get in your way. Begin to research. Begin to study. Lean in. Explore. The Christian faith is not scared of any, of any investigation. Think about it this way. If Jesus is the Son of God, and the Father sent him into the world that he might die for your sins in your place, so that you would be forgiven and accepted into the family of God and shielded from the coming judgment of God, then this is worth spending time investigating, yes? Uh, if that's of interest to you, I've listed a couple of resources in your, your handout there, a couple of books. The first one uh, is, is by uh, Gregory Kokel, The Story of Reality. It's a great resource. It just talks about here's the Christian faith, what it claims, and why we find it to be um, valid. Uh, another resource in there is by C.S. Lewis, who's written Mere Christianity. If you're into C.S. Lewis and that kind of thing, I'm not. He's not my cup of tea. I have a hard time reading him. I found him particularly difficult. I love his quotes. I have a hard time hanging with him in his books. I've started Mere Christianity like four times. I haven't finished it yet, which is like a big <laughs> confession in a church. <laughs> but maybe he's your guy. John Stott uh, has also written Basic Christianity, which is a very simple and easy to read and accessible book. Um, any one of those three um, would be a great starting point if you want to look at the claims of Christ and, and the Christian faith. Maybe you have some other obstacles. Maybe you've got some relationships that, boy, if you became a Christian, suddenly these would be in jeopardy. Family or uh, someone you're dating. Maybe you have a particular sin that you've been hanging on to and you know that Becoming a follower of Jesus Christ means you're going to have to let go of something. I always think of that picture of Gollum falling off of the ledge in the mountain of Mordor to his death and destruction, holding the ring with a big dumb smile on his face, right? My precious, as he falls to the end. That's a picture of hanging on to sin instead of coming 
right with Christ. My encouragement to you is the gospel message is too good and too wonderful and too significant to not explore. Uh, So don't let anything hold you back. Take an example from Zacchaeus who climbed a tree to get a look at Jesus. Do whatever you have to do. Secondly here, we see that not only is Zacchaeus interested in Jesus, but we see that Jesus loves and is interested in Zacchaeus. Verse five, when Jesus reached his body, looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gonna be the guest of a sinner. Well, what we see here uh, is that Zacchaeus is known by Jesus. He calls him by name, calls him out of the tree, says he's coming to his house. I think one of the most amazing things about Jesus is the universal he loves for all mankind, regardless of the condition that they're in. Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector, the big scoundrel. But Jesus' relationship with him is first and foremost love. The default position of Jesus and his feelings towards you are love. I don't have to know anything about your life, but I can tell you boldly this, Jesus loves you. No question. His love isn't sitting there waiting for you to get things right. He's not waiting for you to clean up your act before he can love you. He loves you right now, perfectly, completely, and thoroughly. And he really longs for you to become his child, which is done through repentance. And that's something we see in Zacchaeus in a little bit. We see also that not only is Zacchaeus uh, known and loved by Jesus, but he's, he's accepted by Jesus. And this was a particularly sticky issue at the time here. As you can see, the crowds are going, whoa, Whoa, he's going to the, be the guest of a sinner. He might get their cooties on him or his stuff. Jesus is associating with sinners. This is more, going and having table fellowship in this particular time and place was more than just sharing a bite together. This kind of fellowship kind of indicated a mutual acceptance of one another. Maybe it'd be like vacationing with somebody today or your hunting partner or your workout buddy, a kind of a closeness and, and uh, affection for one another that would, would convey a deeper and mutual acceptance uh, of one another. So this is, this is kind of a shocking thing that Jesus, that Jesus does here. I think one of the things that this confronts us with is that we cannot just simply have a remote love for somebody or just a, oh yeah, I casually, yeah, sure, I just love them, I do. That's the position I have to occupy, yeah. We're meant to be engaged in and involved in people's lives. Jesus regularly interacts with those who don't have their lives together yet. And my question is, do you? Are you engaged uh, in the lives of other people or do you just love them from a distance in an abstract sort of way? I'll give you one way you can do it. You can uh, work on this right now. We're taking up um, uh, food offerings for the, the uh, food bank here in town. We're trying to raise 500 pounds of food. That's kind of our church's goal. We're at about 330 or something like this. 
And a lot of donations financially have been given as well, but we're collecting them right out here in the foyer in the month of August. This is a way we can love people in our community right now. So I would encourage you to do that. The thirdly here, we see that Zacchaeus decides to become a follower of Jesus. Verse eight, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That's significant. A couple of things are happening here. Number one, we see that Zacchaeus has, by by, uh, renouncing kind of what we might call a false idol or an idol in his life of resources and wealth and material possession, he's ready on his own to give that up. You notice Jesus doesn't even ask him to do it. He's just convicted in his own heart that I'm no longer going to cling to these things. There's a new priority in my life. And so I'm going to renounce, as he says here, half of my possessions to the poor. And so we see, we see this real strong piece of evidence here of his decision to follow Jesus. And we see something else here. There's also what we might call a genuine repentance. Not just getting rid of something that he falsely trusted, but there is an admission that he was wrong. If, if I have cheated anybody, I will pay back four times as much. Uh, and this is, this is just really a great picture of what real repentance looks like. We know, we know what fake repentance looks like, don't we? We've seen it before. It's the face of a teenager who got in trouble, got caught. I'm sorry. Which is just a way of trying to reduce the consequence for whatever they did wrong, Right? This is real repentance. This is, as John the Baptist would say, producing fruit in keeping with repentance. This is acting the part of a heart that truly is grieved about what one has done. Again, Jesus doesn't ask him to do this. Zacchaeus does it on his own. Uh, this, This idea of restitution is really fascinating. It's actually an Old Testament concept, even in the law. We see it in Exodus 22. And where we see sort of the case law laid out, if somebody has stolen something, here are sort of the consequences of it. If you were caught, you would typically have to pay back very often double the amount, in some conditions more, but Zacchaeus goes all the way to four. If I've cheated somebody, it's not just going to be paying back. It's not going to be just paying double. I'm going to pay him four times as much. For a guy who was clinging to money, this is real repentance, right? Real repentance. Restitution works like that. It's not just to restore someone whom we've hard, harmed it's, and to make them whole. It's to make the relationship whole, which means we have to put in more than. I have my own story of restitution. When I was a little boy, about six years old, my family moved from Northern California down to Southern California. And uh, we moved in with a family. We lived with them for a month. The McIntyres, they're very close friends, great folks. And they had uh, a boy that was about my age. He was a little bit younger. His name was David, David McIntyre. My toys, most of them were in boxes. I had a handful. But David's toys were everywhere. And David had this little motorcycle. You can see the affection for motorcycles started early. He had this little, I, could, I can still see it in my mind, little Fisher-Price motorcycle with these little black knobby tires. It was green and brown. I could, I mean, maybe I'll show you a picture someday. 
This thing just captured me. I was like, wow, that is great. And I saw it, I liked it, and I took it. And I was in the car one day, just you know, playing with this motorcycle in the car. And my mom turned around and looked at that, and she, she said, hey, David's got a motorcycle like that, doesn't he? And I thought to myself, not anymore. You know, like, <laughs> he used to have one. And, um, and she said, is that his? And I'm kind of like, eh, I don't really like where this is going. And finally, she just declared it. That's David's. You stole it, didn't you? It was caught. Yes, I did. We called a family meeting, actually a meeting of families. And I remember sitting on the end of the bed as both families came into the same room and I had to tell David and his entire family in front of my own that I had stolen this toy, that I was sorry, that I was giving it back, and I had to make restitution. My mom had me give my favorite toy, which was this little brown stomper. You guys remember stompers? These little battery-powered monster trucks that could ride over matchbook cars and all of this. I had to give, my, give that motorcycle back and give my stomper along with the public apology. It was brutal. Brutal. I can remember colors and smells of that incident. You know, like it was awful. And here's the thing. I was made to do it. It wasn't a decision of my own heart. It wasn't made out of conviction. It was made out of mom said. Zacchaeus does all this on his own. He's cut to the heart about what he has been clinging to, financial resources and trusting in them. He's cut to the heart that he's wronged his fellow countrymen and he wants to make it right. The evidence of his contrition and of his repentance and the sincerity of it is really sweet and really wonderful. And it compels Jesus to say this, today salvation has come into this house. Did he buy the salvation? No way. But he produced fruit in keeping with real repentance. And my friends, that is what Jesus wants from you. If you're clinging to something as a source of security in your life, whatever it is, relationships, money, prominence, career, it's false. It's fool's gold. It won't hold you up. And even if it holds you up in life, it won't hold you up in eternity. Each of us, all of mankind, are sinners separated from God, alienated from him because of our sin. But God loved us enough in an unconditional way that he gave his son to die in our place, that our sins would be crucified in him, that through genuine repentance, we could turn in saving faith and be rightly restored to the father. And Zacchaeus is a picture of just that. Unfortunately, Zacchaeus has gone down in Christian history as a wee little man which is unfortunate because measured by his heart, Zacchaeus is a giant. I pray that you would learn from his example of his true repentance today and that you would learn from a picture of Jesus' unconditional love today and be rightly motivated for what's next for you. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful uh, this morning to see this story and be reminded that you love us not 
simply when we get our lives in order, but your love for us is complete and universal and unconditioned. Nothing we can do could make you love us more or less because your love is perfect right now. And in your perfect love, you have given what we need, the person of Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. Father, with such love at work, may we be compelled ourselves to repent of our sins, to turn in saving faith to Jesus, to become his followers, that we would enjoy eternity with you and the blessedness of life following Jesus Christ. Father, direct and prompt each heart here this morning in the way they need to respond to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. It is great to see you this morning. Thanks for taking time to worship and to engage the word of God. And there is a beautiful sunny day outside and you better grab it before we're out of them. So thanks for being here.